Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to you all, New Hope Church. Welcome to you if you're here in person, and welcome to you if you're joining us in spirit, digitally, over the airwaves or the internet. My name is Chris Jones, and I'm not one of the pastors here. <laughs> Today we'll be looking at that last in our series. You know, we've been doing a series through the body of Christ, the church, and this is the final one. We've come to the point now at the end of Matthew's wonderful definition of the church. And so this is gonna be the last in that whole series of the body of Christ. So hopefully we'll go out with a bang, not a whimper. Maybe we can pull up that screen again. Wonderful. All right, now I had to remonstrate with you last week, so let's not do it this week. Let's all read this together, shall we? The church is that fellowship of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ which crafted and empowered by the Holy Spirit and guided by the Word of God is called to wait upon and worship God as it represents and promotes His redemptive plan among all peoples. Absolutely, wow. Stentorian, wonderful voice today. That's fantastic, great. So we're looking at that very last part of the definition where we represent and promote His redemptive plans among all peoples. Among all peoples, of course, is a very broad term and probably deserves a little bit of explanation. So by all peoples, we mean more than just cross-cultural outreach in other countries, which of course is my usual area of involvement. When we say that Christ has a redemptive plan and a purpose for all peoples, we really mean people in every category, every class, every culture, every creed, the young, the old, the rich, the poor, the good, the bad, and the ugly, which is probably the only reason why I'm here. Anyway, or perhaps because I'm the global outreach director. Yes, it might be that too. I found over the years that sometimes we can limit the scope of God's purposes by our assumptions about who we consider all peoples really are. You see, we may think being a missionary is not for us, that we are just, you know, normal Christians, not those crazy ones that do stuff like that. You see, it's very common for people to think that God looks just like us. And sometimes it can be hard for us to imagine God as anything else. But when we think about all peoples and we think about a vision to reach all peoples, it helps us engage, if we'll let it, with the reality that God is far more than I am, and he doesn't look like me at all. Which has got to be a relief for many of you, I should think. When the Mangala people think about God in India, when they think about Christ, what do they see? Do they see that Norwegian Jesus with blue eyes and blonde hair, or do they see him differently? What about the Azerbaijani people? How do they see Christ when they think of him? You see, seeing God in our own image can sometimes hinder us from fully appreciating him and his purposes for all peoples, which are far, far beyond our imaginations. Mother Teresa called the poor around us Jesus's most distressing disguise. <laughs> Jesus's most distressing disguise. How do we view the poor around us? Perhaps more importantly is the question, how do we value the poor and the others around us? How do we value people of other subcultures, communities, languages around us, or even far away 
See, the strength of our desire to complete, to represent, to promote Christ's redemptive plan among all peoples hinges very largely on how you answer that question. As someone once said, rather ironically, you always have the time you need to do the things you want, but you never have the time to do the things you don't. So with that in mind, let's prepare to look at some background to our passage. The second letter written to the Corinthians was written from Macedonia, we think, which is about 400 miles west of Troas. And it was written around about AD 55. Among other things, it addressed a rather difficult moral situation in the Corinthian church. The first Corinthian letter was written about a year or so before and then Paul raised this issue of immorality in the church. But by the second letter, thankfully it had been resolved. The second letter also tried to answer some of the people in the Corinthian church who were actually very critical of Paul. You know, of course, Paul was preaching and going from place to place, and sometimes he got a powerful, wonderful reception, and other times he didn't. Sometimes he got a very negative, sometimes even a life-threatening reception. And some people in the Corinthian church were suggesting that, well, you know, if he was really a servant of Christ, then Christ would always protect him from these things. He wouldn't have to suffer through some of this stuff. They were basically calling into question both the weakness of his calling, but also whether he really was a person who was supposed to be doing it all. So what did Paul say? Paul said that God actually displays his power through my weakness. Sometimes that's a hard one for us to get our heads around. We're from a very power-showing, distance, powerful, authoritarian kind of society where weakness is frowned upon looked upon as a bad thing by many people. But Paul is saying, well, actually, because I'm weak, Christ actually has more sway, more power, more authority, is able to do much more in my life than he would be if I was strong. Nobody's turning around and saying, well, that poor guy, man, he's really strong, so everything works out great for him. Nobody dare mess with him. Actually, the opposite was true. Many people did mess with Paul. And he said, yet, despite that, the gospel goes forward, the word goes out, because God's power is made perfect in our weakness. The body of Christ itself, as a group, the church, is empowered by the spirit of Christ to do all he asks of us. There's a lot of human power and a lot of human wisdom around. You hear it quite a lot if you read anything anywhere. People have got an opinion. That's great. That's fine. People are open to that. But when the Spirit of Christ empowers us, the glory goes to God, not to the working of our great power, our great plans, our wonderful strategies. Christ is honored. Christ is exalted. Anyway, let's have a look at our passage. I think there it is, 2 Corinthians 12. Two, isn't it? 12 to 17, excuse me. I'll read it for you. Feel free to follow along and have that ready because we'll go back to it a few times throughout the time of our message. Now, when I arrived in Troas to proclaim the gospel of Christ, even though the Lord had opened a door of opportunity for me, I had no relief in my spirit because I did not find my brother, Titus, there. So I said goodbye to them and set out for Macedonia. 
But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and who makes known through us the fragrance that consists of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a sweet aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the latter, an odor from death to death, but to the former, a fragrance from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like so many others, hucksters, who peddle the word of God for profit, but we are speaking in Christ, before God, as persons of sincerity, as persons sent from God. That's the word of the Lord to us. Paul finishes this passage of these verses with a rather important question for us. When we consider what it means to represent and promote Christ's redemptive plan to all peoples, he asks this question, who is adequate for these things? Who is adequate for these things? Well, no one, unless the Spirit of God empowers the body of Christ to accomplish these things. Because remember, his strength is what is made perfect in our weakness. But going back to that passage, what things is he talking about? He says, who's adequate for these things? What things? What is Paul trying to say to us? I'm gonna break down this passage into three sections to try and get to the bottom of what these things are and how at the same time we as the body of Christ can set out to accomplish them by his spirit working amongst us. Here are the three things I'm gonna use as little points for us to work. First one, proclaiming the gospel of Christ. We see that in section one, there we go, where Paul is talking about his time in Troas, proclaiming the gospel of Christ. Second one is making known the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ everywhere. That second section in the middle is all about triumphal procession, about fragrance, about us taking that fragrance around the world. And the third one is we ourselves being the aroma of Christ personally. What does that mean? What does that look like? What are the things that that speaks to us about that are necessary? It sounds pretty daunting, but Paul actually says we are adequate for this task because we're commissioned to do it as the body of Christ. And we're called to speak in Christ with a purity of heart or a sincerity as it was in our passage and purpose as those who've been sent by God. You see, these things were Christ's purpose for coming to the earth. And they're the task he's given to us. We, as we spoke about last week, are resurrected from death ourselves and raised up to live a life of sacrifice as worship to God. And if you're not sure about all that, please watch last week's video. The problem is that often our individualistic mindset can lead us into this thinking that Christ died just for me, even me. Which is wonderful and undoubtedly true, but is it the end of the story? You see, no one would ever say, well, you know, Jesus only died for me. But can we be tempted sometimes to act as if we do think that? Christ dying for me and for you 
Wow, that's, that's life-changing. That's eternally significant. But knowing that, knowing that he did die for us, should fill our hearts with gratitude, should propel us to be those living sacrifices we spoke of last week. But our personal following of Christ is only a part of a much greater picture. If we see our faith primarily as just becoming a better Christian or working on our sanctification, our doctrine, and our righteousness, then we'll miss something very important about being the fragrance of Christ for all peoples. Let me share something of a little personal story, some of my own personal story of salvation. On June the 9th, 1979, when dinosaurs roamed the earth, I know, after several weeks of God sending his people and even a sense of his presence to try and get through my thick skull, I heard very clearly for the first time the message that Christ died for me. He died to cleanse my past that was sinful, and he died so I could be justified and reconciled to the Father in relationship with him. That night, I gave myself completely to God. I consecrated myself to him. I committed to pursue relationship with him and serve him for as long as I had breath. If Christ died for me, then I would live for him. That night as I prayed for God's forgiveness in my own room, I felt a powerful physical manifestation of something being lifted off me. And my life has truly never been the same. But this very personal private decision in my bedroom began a chain of events that caused me to learn more about following and imitating Christ, what that meant. I discovered pursuing an intimate relationship with Christ would lead me to want to be like Christ. Funnily enough, Psalm 115 talks about people who make idols and they bow down to them and they worship them. And it says they're, they're dumb and unfeeling, they can do nothing. And then it says those who do this will eventually become like them. It's kind of a little bit of Jewish irony there back in the Psalms for a laugh, I suppose, mocking the idol worshipers. But funnily enough, there is a principle here that that which we worship, that which we fix our gaze on, that which we adore and love, we will oftentimes become like. If that's true of Jesus, that's okay by me. As we worship the Lord, as we give to him, we will become what we worship. Like the Father does, we begin to share his heart for those he created as we draw closer to him. And after a while, I began earnestly seeking how I could be part of my Father's work. I was 17 years old from a non-Christian family and I had no idea what I was doing. I had to get a Bible. <laughs> I had no knowledge but great desire. Two years later, I found myself in a field, praying, waiting on God, spending eight hours seeking the Lord earnestly for what he would do. He told me, go to the nations. Four years later, I left England for Hong Kong to work with triad, heroin addicts, street sleepers. My father, as I left, said, you are not my son, don't come back. Mmm, little cost there in this following Jesus sometimes. Of course, I ignored him. But like the father does, we begin to share his heart for those he created. We draw closer to him. You see, the challenge for us sometimes 
is that we have the opposite of what I had. Sometimes as we get older in the faith, we have a great deal of knowledge. We fill ourselves up with that their knowledge. But sometimes we don't seem to leave any space for desire. We can become a little bit too wise to worship fully. A little bit too sensible to sacrifice everything. And sometimes a little bit too pious to promote this gospel. If we want to follow the will of God, we need to learn from the way of Christ. Reading, praying, fasting, listening, waiting on God, as Jesus did. If you have that earnest desire to order your life, then God will recognize and entrust you with the work of Christ too. You see, John tells us that the will, tells us very clearly what the will and purpose of Christ was. If we imitate Christ, if we're the body of Christ on earth, then surely the purposes of Christ are also our purposes too. We all know John 3.16, very famous passage, but here's John 3.17. I've not seen anybody yet wearing a t-shirt at an ice hockey match with this yet, but maybe they will now. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Oh, I thought he did. But in order that the world might be saved through him. Okay, that's it. Clear enough? Got it? We all got that? This makes Christ's purpose very clear. But remember, at the same time, we are his body. And all we're here for is to save the world. Okay, no pressure. Let's get right on with that, if you could, as soon as you leave. But remember, we do it through him, not by force of our own will, by planning, strategy, by our own best ideas on how to do it. Trust me, if you read enough, you'll see that history is full of those who went off in their own strength and wist not that the Spirit of God had departed, rather like Samson. Off they went, full of vigor and vim. We do this through Christ empowered by Christ, guided by Christ, directed by Christ. We are his body. We can't have any heads with bodies running around doing what the head doesn't want, can we? That would never do. But if you think about it, and you think about that passage, you might ask yourself the question, because I have a strange mind that thinks like this, how could the world be saved through him? How could the world be saved through someone who physically left the earth around about AD 33? Hmm. See, Jesus is not here in the flesh. This verse must be fulfilled by us, his body here on earth, as we continue Christ's work. Maybe that's a new thought for us. What else would it mean for us to be the body of Christ if not to represent and promote this redemptive plan of Christ among all peoples? Continuing what he did, and as Jesus said, even greater things. Let's look at that again. I'm gonna break down the passage into three separate sections that correspond to the three things I think Paul is talking about for the body's purpose. Now, each section will highlight very much how we can represent and promote God among all peoples. But remember what I said last week about verses and chapters? This is a letter, it didn't have verses and chapters. They were added later, so we're gonna ignore those. And, uh, We'll break it up in three separate sections. So, Paul begins the passage by sharing about his time in the city of Alexandria, Troas, commonly known as Troas. It's thought that the first Corinthian letter was written from Ephesus, which is a city 
which used to be on the western coast of Turkey, but it's now landlocked. And Troas is about 250 miles north of Ephesus. You'll find it in the Dardanelles Strait of northwestern Turkey. And it's probably more famous by the city that used to be there many, many centuries before, because it was built upon the city of Troy. That's where Troas comes from. Troy was the subject of an ancient battle story more than a thousand years before Christ. In fact, my wife Jo, bless her, has a relative buried there. And one year when we lived in Turkey, we were actually able to find his cemetery. He was a soldier in the 1916 First World War who died, like many others have done through the centuries and the millennia in that place. Because you see, Troas is a very strategic place. It guards the opening into the place where now Istanbul and into the Black Sea is. That meant that it was very strategic for Paul to be there and he was probably passing through on his way to Macedonia. Macedonia is about 400 miles to the west of Troas. See, if you wanna share the good news, if you want the purposes and the plan of Jesus to go wide and far, then it makes a lot of sense to pick a place where people are coming and going on ships and boats all the time. So let's look at that first section. The first title was Proclaiming the Gospel of Christ. This is what Paul said. Now when I arrived in Troas to proclaim the gospel of Christ, even though the Lord had opened a door of opportunity for me, I had no relief in my spirit because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them, set out for Macedonia. First thing to notice here, when we are sharing and bringing the gospel of Christ, is this is not a solo venture. See, in verse 12, when Paul speaks about his time in Troas, he makes it clear there's an open door of opportunity to share the gospel. But he just didn't feel right about continuing without Titus. It appears he'd already started preaching and that maybe some had already responded to the message and given their lives to God. But because he didn't feel an ease about it, he says goodbye and leaves for Macedonia. Now, be easy to ask, well, were there no more people who needed to hear the gospel? I mean, why did he leave? What was the problem? Well, Paul perhaps understood something we don't always realize, but it's that every believer, even though he's ready to make opportunity at every time, will find that Christ is best represented by his body, not just one part of it. You know, they do lots of studies about evangelism and outreach and sharing the gospel. A lot of people have put a lot of time and effort into it, but one of the things that always comes back is that outreach is always done best by two or more. Now, there may be many reasons for this. Perhaps second person makes the other person feel bolder who's sharing. Maybe they witness to the truth of what is being said. Maybe perhaps the second person will pray while the other one is speaking. We might also say that, well, remember, Jesus told his followers to do it that way. He sent them out two by two, right? When they went out to proclaim the gospel, they didn't go out one by one. They went two by two. And that's probably a wise pattern for us to consider whenever we share in Christ. But this is not just about special outreach teams or anything like that. You know, a few weeks before I gave my life to Christ in June the 9th, 1979, I remember being incredibly impacted by spending an afternoon with a faithful Christian family in a town somewhere that I was visiting. They noticed me and my friends in church that morning and they invited us all to their home for lunch and for the afternoon. You see, they represented Christ in a way I'd never even seen before. Lived out in a family and a believing community. 
I really encourage you not to underestimate the spiritual power of hospitality to strangers. We've perhaps forgotten a little bit of what some cultures understand very well, that opening your home and table is opening your heart to others and welcoming them in. Second point on this first one is, representing Christ is best done by the body of Christ. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in their midst. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst. You see, it's hard to be two or three when you're alone, obviously. We can discuss what a church is till the cows come home, but if the Spirit of Christ is present in a gathering of even a few believers, it's His presence that will make it the body of Christ, that breathes, speaks, and lives in Christ. His presence will make the presentation of the gospel more than just a debate or a discussion because the Holy Spirit enlivens the body of Christ to better represent the gospel in spirit and word. The disciples didn't just try and convince people that they went to, they also prayed for them. They served them. They demonstrated God's love for them as Christ's body. Paul did share the gospel alone, yes, but he wanted his brother Titus there to represent the body of Christ more fully, to stand with him as a sign that this was not just the talk of one man. You may remember that in Jewish law, you needed two people at least to give faithful witness and truthful witness when you were giving testimony. Perhaps this is especially true about the important testimony of the gospel. One other more practical point here is that considering Paul's history as a preacher, he might also have needed someone to carry him home after the crowd stoned or beat him senseless, as sometimes happened. However anxious you feel about representing and promoting Christ, you're unlikely to be beaten for it in the US. That's not true for many faithful disciples around the world today. Pray for them. Do not forget those who suffer or languish in prison for the sake of the faith. Remember, they are part of the body of Christ too. Now later on this year in November, November the 5th, we'll be having a day of prayer for the persecuted church when we will remember and we'll be having a brother here to speak who knows what it is to suffer for Christ. Please come and share that time with us. Last point on this first one. New members of the body of Christ actually need somewhere to gather, grow, and function as a body. You see, Paul had a very wise method of sharing Christ in new places. He'd share the gospel, and as people began to follow Christ, he would often leave a brother from his team, or more, to stay and continue the work of building the body in that place. If he was alone, just Paul, that would make that much more difficult. You see, that's thinking with the end in mind. That's thinking with reproduction and multiplication in mind. You see, when the body of Christ is there to welcome new believers, it can operate with all of its different functions, employing more of the gifts that God gave to build up or edify the body of Christ. Ephesians speaks of the five-fold ministry giftings that God gives to build up the church. We've grown very accustomed in our Western church tradition to the primacy of the pastor gift, but remember, it is one of five gifts outlined by Paul for the building of the body. The other four are just as important. 
apostolic gifting, prophetic gifting, evangelistic gifting, teaching gifting, and of course, pastoral gifting. These are all parts of what Christ has given to his body to build it up so it can better represent and promote Christ among all peoples. I think it's fair to say in Christ we see all five of those. Perhaps in his body, we should also consider this as God's provision for us, the body of Christ. For the body to be built up, these giftings are a vital part of the inheritance the Lord gave us to accomplish our task. Let me share a real life current example of what might have influenced Paul's thinking. We have a very long term ministry partnership as New Hope Church with as different agencies and churches working among Azerbaijanis. Now new technology makes it possible to literally direct gospel media, Bible verses, Jesus film, that kind of thing, to very specific places. This is new technology, it's rather wonderful, but you can pinpoint a very specific region, town, or area, even a space within a larger city. And it's been extremely effective. God has used this to raise up much interest in the gospel among this people group. But there are times when it's so effective, we have so many responses, we actually have to stop sending those things to those places because we do not have the people who can go and follow up. We don't have enough people to go and visit those dear ones who have asked to know more and to meet with somebody. Paul wouldn't continue with Titus, without Titus, excuse me, just as our partners will wait for more local workers to be available. No farmer wants a harvest to spoil in the field. No farmer wants things to die on the vine. So pray, pray for laborers, just as Jesus told us to be sent into the harvest, as bodybuilders and harvesters, powered by the Holy Spirit in their efforts to promote Christ. Now let's move on to the second section, making known the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ everywhere. For time's sake, I won't read it, but this is the passage where Paul talks about the triumphal procession in Christ. Paul, as he often does, he uses an image that would be very, very familiar to those who read this passage, but perhaps it's not quite as familiar to us so very many years later. The pompa triumphalis, hmm, okay. Or as Paul categorizes it, the triumphant procession, was very familiar to people of that time. In fact, records tell us there were about 300 of these processions of victory after a military campaign in the Greco-Roman period. Now originally, these were actually dedicated to Dionysius or Bacchus, known as the twice-born wine god. However, later these parades were held in honor of Jupiter, or Zeus, his father. Does it seem kind of strange or inappropriate to you, perhaps, for Paul to use such an example? Do you remember in Athens, when he was on Mars Hill, Paul quoted something that's been made into a hymn by many people down through the ages, for from him and through him and to him, you know that one, but in him we live and move and have our being. Not actually a hymn to Jesus or to the Father, but a hymn to Zeus. Paul used that one too to speak and to present the gospel to the Greeks. You see, when Paul was not speaking to Jews, not speaking to those of his own tribe and language and background, he understood 
that to bring the gospel to other peoples means starting from their experience and understanding rather than ours. This is an important lesson for us too. Remember I said, Christ doesn't look like us. We are supposed to look like him, bringing the fragrance of Christ to all peoples rather than just the Jesus that we have in our mind. So now you understand Paul is using a pagan parade where people are sacrificed to Zeus or Jupiter as a picture of how Christ spreads his fragrance to the world. Imagine that. You see, though the procession seems a little bit gruesome to our minds, it holds rich imagery for Paul to explain and promote the task of bringing the gospel to all peoples. Just to give us a bit of insight and to help us understand Paul's imagery a bit better, we need to learn a little bit more about these parades. You see, there were typically seven key components to every one of these processions. The first component would be a group of people carrying pictures and the spoils of war of the great battle. Following them usually came white bulls. These bulls would be sacrificed to Zeus later or Jupiter later up at the temple. Third came the prisoners. These are the ones who'd been beaten in battle and they were paraded before them. And in fact, their leaders, the head prisoners amongst them, would actually be executed at Jupiter's temple. Now after these guys, there came a group of incense bearers. And these incense bearers, their job was to burn incense and produce clouds and clouds of smoke that would be recognized and smelt far and wide. After the incense bearers came the actual general himself, the victorious general, right at the heart of the parade. After that came those grateful Romans who'd been rescued from those barbarians who'd been liberated and bringing up the rear right in seventh place would come the general's own loyal troops. Those are the guys who brought up the rear. Seven components. Paul is calling on familiar imagery to Gentiles to emphasize our role as the body of Christ. But who do we associate with? Who's Paul saying that we are in that line of people? Are we the troops bringing up the rear? Are we the liberated ones? Well, these are all good answers, I think. That's probably true. But Paul is focusing very much on those who are burning the incense. Their job is to spread the fragrance of the incense to everyone, victors and vanquished alike. Just as we are commanded to spread the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ to all peoples everywhere. Last week we talked a little bit about sacrifice and glorifying God with the worship of our lives. That's a very appropriate image because you see, Scripture often uses the picture of fragrance to represent the offering that is accepted by God. Here's just two very short examples. Screen 7 will pop up there in Philippians. It says this. Paul, when he received a gift from the Philippian church, was said this to them. I received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Philippians 4.18. Philippians, Paul is speaking about a financial gift by the church and seeing it as a fragrant offering and an acceptable sacrifice. In Ephesians, Paul actually links the idea of sacrifice to the imitation of Christ. Let's have a look at that one in Ephesians 5, verses 1 
to two. He says this, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You see, the body of Christ is to imitate God as Christ did. Christ's life was a sacrifice, a fragrant offering to God. And he asks us to live in the same way. In fact, there are about 52 instances in the Bible where it speaks about the aroma of some form of sacrifice as being pleasing to God. This was well known to those who were versed in the scriptures, just as the procession and the incense burning in the procession was well known to those who were not. You see, everyone in and around the parade would be able to smell the clouds of burning incense. The leaders to be executed at the temple in front of the people, the incense burners, those liberated, the troops behind. The fragrance was the same for everybody who smelled it. it was the same incense, just as the gospel is good news for all people. The plan of God is that through Christ, all people will be saved and walk in relationship with him. But not everyone will receive this as a fragrant offering. To some, the gospel comes as life itself. To others, it reveals an enmity to God and it smells of death. But the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ must be taken to the ends of the earth, the end of the street, and to all peoples so they can know. This is how the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ will go to all peoples as we offer the sweet aroma of the sacrifice of our lives. This will rise up and be pleasing to God. I want you to notice one thing too that's very significant, where the victorious general actually is in the procession. You see, Paul's description might suggest that he was up at the head, up at the front, leading. Because he says, Christ leads us. But perhaps this tells us a little bit more about how we view leadership than how Jesus does. The victor was embedded in the middle of the parade, not at the front or the back. He came before the liberated ones and faithful soldiers, but after the incense burners. In fact, he was found in the middle of those, of all those who had achieved or had benefited from his victory. This is the Jesus way. Jesus said, for who's greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Isn't it the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. That's Luke 22, 27. When Christ sent us and sends us to represent and promote his redemptive plan among people, he said he would be with us till the end of the age. Not that he would lead us from the front or be over us. And our posture and attitude in spreading the fragrance of Christ should be that of Christ, that we are with, not over or above. Because Christ is in our midst purpose of Christ in John 3:17 becomes our purpose in Matthew 28 verses 19 to 20. You know these verses very well. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Make disciples. Don't get decisions. Make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe or obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The task is momentous. Of course, it's enormous. And it gets bigger by the day. There are more people born each and every day. But Christ is always with you. 
He's always with those who spread the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ to all peoples. It's not my task. It's not your task. It's our task as the body of Christ with Christ in our midst, his spirit empowering us to do this. In verse 14, Paul says very clearly that he's going to do this through us with Christ in our midst. The world will be saved through him, as John 3.17 says, because he is amongst us in the middle of his church, his body. Great preachers, missionaries, heroes of the faith, they all inspire us. We love to hear those stories. And it's right that we honor faithfulness and obedience in those that are with us. But Paul didn't say this happened through one or two very highly gifted individuals. He said through us, his body. The body of Christ is the most powerful representative of Christ on earth, and never more so than when we gather to worship, pray, seek his face to empower us to spread the fragrance of the knowledge of Jesus. So let's finish off. Being the aroma of Christ ourselves. So if I was to ask you today, are you fragrant or are you smelly? What would you say? You'd say that naughty Chris asking questions like that again. Those processional incense burners gave off a smell of fragrant spices. You couldn't actually smell the people burning through all those spices. They were so strong. And the powerful aroma of the clouds of incense would go everywhere, wherever the smell the burners had, whatever they smelt like, nobody knew. You see, the challenge for us as incense burners is to ensure that we are the aroma of Christ, not something else. If we're not watchful, sometimes our aroma can be one thing that is neither pleasing nor acceptable to God. Unfortunately, we're not always the first ones to notice something that doesn't smell quite right about us. We can become quite used to our smell, however unpleasant, all too quickly. We need those around us to help, help us to notice. And the body of Christ is really no different. I worked for several years in a homeless shelter in England and then with street sleepers and all kinds of characters in Hong Hong Kong. And I can tell you that some smells are nicer than others. That's for sure, I tell you. And also, after you've been with the smelly for long enough, you stop smelling it. That's kind of a warning to us. Jesus displayed this principle, this principle of being mindful of our aroma very well when he washed the feet of his own disciples. See, Jesus knew that smelly feet needed a good wash and it can be tempting to run away from bad smells. But Jesus showed us how we should deal with them by washing the feet of his own disciples. And he told us to do exactly the same. He said, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash another's feet. John 13, verse 14. You see, after walking around the world a little, our feet might smell. Do they give off a sweet aroma of the Spirit of Christ or something a little less fragrant? How do we deal with that? Prophet Isaiah said, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Well, let me add a little bit to that and say, and how blessed are the hands of those who wash the feet which have been dirtied by the world. When people come near to us, what do they smell? Self-righteousness, bitterness, resentment, fear, pride, selfishness. These things are not the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ. 
These are the things God came to free us of so that he could make us more like Jesus. And if we'll let him, he'll wash our feet from the smell of the world upon us. But we need to listen humbly to the body of Christ around us because, as I say, sometimes we're the last one to smell it. The fragrance of Christ smells like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This aroma of the fruit of the Spirit should be the aroma of all for us as Christ, as his body. If we want to represent and promote the redemptive plan of Christ, we need to allow the Spirit and those he sets alongside us in the body of Christ to help us smell more like Jesus. When God cleanses of these things in our hearts and lives, then we will truly be the aroma of Christ to a dying world. I began full-time ministry in 1983, global ministry in 1985. I worked with many agencies and organizations around the world, but I still believe that sharing the gospel with all peoples everywhere is the main task and the primal task of the body of Christ, whether in Minneapolis or Mesopotamia. This is our purpose. This is our work as the body of Christ, as imitators of Christ, of those who do the will of him who saved and sent us. Last week, we spoke about sacrifice of our lives as acceptable worship. This week, we spoke about how we can live our lives as a fragrant offering to Christ and represent and promote his redemptive plan for all people. Let me finish with this. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, and I think it'll pop up, yes, he did. Only he who believes is obedient. And only he who is obedient believes. Let me say that again. Let that rest on your heart a minute. Only he who believes is obedient. And only he who is obedient believes. So my last question for us is, will we be? Will we be obedient and show that we believe? And show that we believe by being obedient? Let's pray. I want to pray for those who've never followed Christ, but now want to. I want to ask, Father, that in this time, they take this opportunity, not to just say yes to anything, but to give themselves completely to Christ and his purpose. Christ offers his forgiveness to you. He offers to reconcile you to the Father. The Father has been seeking you as a true worshiper for all your life. Whether you've been in churches for years or this is the first time truly meeting Christ, I urge you, ask for his forgiveness. Ask for forgiveness for those who have shamed and pained you and for the unworthy things you have done to others. God sees a humble heart. He's quick to cleanse and heal us from these things when we give ourselves to him and show you his mercy. If you pray this way, if you make this decision to walk with Christ, then you have become a part of his body on earth. And I encourage you to tell someone just so we can help you and walk with you as a new part of the family. Welcome home. If you're already a believer but have not understood what it is to truly give yourself to the purpose of Christ for his body, I pray for you now. 
I ask, Father, you would put within my brothers and sisters such a longing and such a desire to seek you, to consecrate themselves to the purpose of Christ, to proclaim the gospel to all peoples everywhere, to spread the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ and be themselves the aroma of Christ to all those around them, within and outside his body. Holy Spirit of God, empower us to walk faithfully in these things, I pray. Amen.